Who is leading the EV revolution? Well, by the the Indian automobile industry, Tata Motors. Yeah, look at the the automobile industry in India today. After roti, kapda, and makan, the next thing you need is a car. Marty Suzuki. I think it's one of your favorite stocks of all time. Suzuki Motors went ahead and developed products specifically for the Indian market. Lisa Mahindra Racing is one of the founding members of Formula E, and all of that credit goes to Anand Mahindra. Elon Musk and Tesla can take a lot of credit for shifting us away from this mentality of gasoline cars. The auto industry has understood the trick to boost sales. Although I'll, I'll say one thing though, I think MRF's greatest contribution to India has been to sponsor Sachin's back. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
but these two companies were constrained by the lack of technology there were constraints on their capacity but the inflection point for the auto industry was when maruti udyog which was formed by sanjay gandhi uh, son of indira gandhi he had a passion for cars and he set up maruti but that also he could not get the right technology so he formed a joint venture with suzuki motors and that's when the uh, auto industry in india really took off because suzuki motors brought in state of art technology state of art models beautiful looking cars and uh, clearly i think uh, you know the first maruti 800 launch was with a great deal of fanfare it had 4 5 years uh, of booking and there were huge premiums also almost it was car was costing 50000 but you could earn a premium of almost 50000 rupees on the car if you had a allotment letter so the industry started from there and because suzuki motors came to india from japan they got a lot of the japanese auto ancillaries also into india and they got indian industrialists to set up joint ventures with those auto ancillary companies from japan and that's how the entire production backward integration the indigenization program started from that point on and the rest is history i think we have a lot to thank the government and suzuki motors for developing the auto industry in india yeah and you know it's what what i always think about is i think i look at the the automobile industry in india today and i think there's a really strong presence of japanese manufacturers i think started by suzuki but maybe there's some deeper more fundamental reasons to that if you think about japan post world war 2 they were also an economy of scarcity high efficiency low construction cost was really important for them to manufacture cars efficiently and for india which has never really had any hydrocarbons um high efficiency low cost car has always been of much more importance this is you know the american model where you have low efficiency cars you know cars that have a lot of power but they burn a lot of fuel um but it's grown it's grown you know that that growth has been outstanding and i think it's really matched the income growth of india over the last 30 40 years absolutely i think owning a car has more than transportation has got aspirational value and if you own a car then you really arrived and it's uh, something which a lot of uh, uh, you know users feel very passionate about i think you know we have this saying uh, you know that after roti kapda and makan the next thing you need is a car yeah yeah so that's where uh, the indian auto industry fits in and i think every uh, indian citizen has a life cycle he starts with a cycle actual cycle gets on to a motorcycle his dream is a car then he gets into the car and then he wants a bigger and bigger car so that's the ultimate destination for a lot of consumers and i think the indian auto industry offers uh, some product for at every price point yeah. for every user and i think that's fantastic yeah and uh, i guess the other thing to note is you know you touched on this whole aspirational value of a car because right? india is really an aspirational country um it's really interesting to see if as you can see the volume growth as well in the number of cars being manufactured and sold over the last 20 30 years has shown some really solid consistent growth and i think that's reflected in some of the listed companies as well that have been great wealth creators you hit the nail on the head when i said the way the government has promoted the auto industry uh, by not allowing imports first and by focusing and promoting indigenous uh, development it has created so many uh, wealth uh, companies which have created a lot of wealth starting with maruti there's mahindra and mahindra there's tata motors and there's a whole host of auto ancillary companies also 
Bharat Forge comes to mind. Amaraja batteries, Exide. That's right. And the tyre companies, I mean, you know, Apollo Tyres, MRF, I think uh, the entire transportation industry has benefited because of indigenous automobile production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I'll, I'll say one thing though, I think MRF's greatest contribution to India has been to sponsor Sachin's batch. Ah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's the most valuable. That's another story. When India didn't have pace bonus, that's when MRF came in and set up the Indian Pace Academy. And now we have a you know, bountiful, uh, we are spoiled for choice when it comes to fast bowlers. So that's why I think Adam benefit <laughs> for having a vibrant battle industry. <laughs> Great. The the, uh, the presence of cricket in Indian life is never too far away. Absolutely. And auto companies have been sponsoring cricketing events as well. Yep. And they have given great deal of uh, support to Indian cricketers as well. Yeah. But I think the industries are another inflection point. Now, if you look over the last, uh, over the last 50, 60 years, not just in India, globally, um, auto sales, auto manufacturing has been driven by gasoline cars. But uh, I think Elon Musk and Tesla can take a lot of credit for shifting us away from this mentality of gasoline cars over to EV cars. And I mean, I'll, I'll throw out some really important names. Tesla is one of them. But uh, there's a lot of really important companies in China, BYD in particular, that are driving this EV transformation. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, I guess from the Japanese side of things, they're investing very heavily into hydrogen technology. So it seems almost like the the automobile industry for passenger vehicles, commercial vehicles, and two wheelers as well is is at the is at the cusp of a revolutionary shift from fossil fuel powered vehicles to EVs and, and maybe even hydrogen. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of disruption taking place in the industry, and whatever disruption is taking place is very very positive for India. Because we are highly dependent on crude oil uh, and for petroleum products, therefore. And if we have lower oil prices because of a global shift towards EV, then that will make our economy much stronger and improve the balance of payments and the current account deficit problems also may get eased if oil prices are within control or actually come down. So I'm really tracking this uh, growth of EV uh, industry, the growth of alternate uh, energy how it is shaping up within India globally as well because they're all interconnected. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect though that even however strong the shift to EVs or renewable energy becomes, I would not expect the the oil price to suffer because I think even if you've seen in the news recently, every time demand comes down for fossil fuels uh, because of the cartelized nature of fossil fuel production, particularly by OPEC, they will always cut production um, because. Every oil economy, they structure their national budget around the price of oil. They have a target revenue that they want to hit. And only at that target revenue are they, uh, are they, do they have a current account surplus. So every time the price of oil falls, as it has been doing in the last couple of months, they respond with a production cut as they have done most recently. So I would love to see a shift away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. I think it's positive for the Indian economy. It's positive for um, the world at large. It's positive for the environment. But uh, I would not expect this to be accompanied by a cut in fossil fuel prices. That that doesn't seem real. The question I want to ask you is that do you think OPEC and OPEC Plus are now trying to target less volatility in oil prices and trying to keep the oil prices, crude oil prices within a more narrow range, uh, which is great for everyone. I'm throwing that question to you. I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that at all. I think volat- they're, they're perfectly happy with volatility because they are the, they're the lowest cost producer. 
So for them, what what their broader strategic plays is they want to be the longest, they want to be the last man standing in oil, particularly Saudi Arabia. So every time there's volatility in oil prices, what happens is the smaller oil producers, so the shale oil producers in the US, in Canada, in the West generally that rely on external capital financing, they they suffer. And every time they suffer, they collapse and they don't come back with as much strength. If you go back to, I think, 2015, 2016, there was this whole conversation around the shale oil boom. Uh, and that's disappeared if you think about it. So they're, they're very happy to survive through volatility because they have the strongest hand, because they know ultimately all that volatility will do is it'll strengthen their hand, it'll, sh it'll strengthen their share of the pie. And then the, the more of the pie they have, the more control they can have over the final oil price. So it, volatility is, I think, a, a, a negotiating tool for them rather than something that hurts them. That's an interesting point. But another very important aspect uh, which drives uh, the auto industry, which we should discuss, is interest rates. Because globally, auto uh, passenger vehicles are bought on EMI. Yeah. And interest rates, uh, auto sales are very sensitive to interest rates. Yeah. And this recent upswing in interest rates, I think the numbers which you showed yeah. just now, they have not yet impacted. No, well, no, that's not true. As you can see, uh, the the cost of purchasing a new car, the rates on new as well as used car loans in the U.S. especially have started spiking in the last couple of quarters. Uh, so these interest rate hikes are feeding into you know the cost of buying a car on finance. So although it hasn't really uh, you know influenced automobile purchases, I think with the interest rate cycle being where it is uh, and with the expectation of continually higher interest rates because of inflation, I would expect for the cost of purchasing a car on finance to stay high. That's true. I think that's going to be one of the uh, kind of uh, headwinds as far as the auto industry is concerned. In India as well, I think interest costs are going up. But in India, when it comes to overview of the auto industry, there is something very positive uh, trend which is happening which is that all the auto companies, they have now got a very exciting range of new models. And that is what's really driving their, their sales. And more importantly, again, the same aspirational uh, aspect comes into play. And therefore, they're able to sell cars which are at a higher value, which have got all the bells and whistles, bigger cars. Because the way they try and do it is that your EMI is going only by only a few hundred rupees. So why don't you buy the state-of-art new SUV or a new EV and uh, you know you can uh, have the benefit of a much superior uh, product yeah. than what you were actually looking at buying. It's that, so. it's that premiumization trend yes, that's, that's right. presumably driving better margins for the auto manufacturer. Absolutely I think because the higher the average selling price the higher the margins which are there and because a lot of new model sales are taking place the discounting also is less mm -hmm. and I think the auto industry has understood the trick to boost sales is to keep on having a very high uh, quantum, high velocity of new models, new variants coming in. And that's how they're keeping the user engaged. And also the average ownership in number of years is declining because new models are coming into play. So this is another fabulous trend. I mean, uh, from a consumer point of view, you know, you are, you are again being tempted to buy new models and it's going to burn your pocket. But from the auto industry point of view, I think it is uh, it's a very, very sound and uh, 
a nice strategy to follow to boost their sales. Yeah. And this this trend towards new model launches isn't just with gasoline-powered cars. I think particularly Tata and M&M, uh, they've, they've got a really robust plan to launch EVs and hybrids. And they've, they've been investing very heavily into EV technology. And I guess just to maybe give a little, little interesting piece of information. Now, most of the automobile manufacturers globally, at least Tesla and BYD, they've invested very heavily into the, into the battery platforms, which is the heart of an EV. They've invested in lithium ion batteries that use the nickel cobalt chemistry. And that, that offers superior performance in terms of energy density. Uh, and as a, as, a, as a result, it offers superior performance in terms of range. But the cost of mining cobalt and nickel is very high. So they are more expensive as a result. But Tata and M&M in particular, because of the price sensitivity and the relatively low price point of the Indian auto industry, they've invested very heavily into lithium iron phosphate battery chemistry, which doesn't offer as high uh, energy density on the batteries, but it's much more cost competitive. And um, but can I share a secret with you? So I was speaking to somebody on the shop floor uh, kind of a middle-level manager at one of these EV manufacturing companies because I was thinking of buying my next car has to be an EV. I think we are all very uh, ecologically sensitive in that manner. And he told me that all of the present EV manufacturing companies in India, be it the Tata or the Harrier or Mahindra they are still experimenting with technology. They do not have a stable state technology. Every year they try out something new, see what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And then they are, it's like a, you know, a two steps forward, one step backward kind of a strategy. So he was discouraging me from buying an EV at this point of time. He's saying that globally, let the technology stabilize. Like how we have a stable technology when it came to uh, the, the fossil fuels. At some point of time, we will have a stable technology when it comes to EV. And from a purchasing point of view, that's the right time to buy because then you would have the best product at the right price. Mm. That's, that's completely fair. And I'm not even... I'm not even necessarily convinced that uh, EVs are the future of renewable mobility because I think if we look at Reliance and Adani as well as the major Japanese manufacturers, they're investing very heavily into hydrogen. And just an interesting point to note, compressed hydrogen has 1.5 times the energy density of gasoline. Um, but the, the big drawback of compressed hydrogen is that the actual compression technology, the tanks uh, are very heavy. So the net performance of compressed hydrogen tends to be quite bad because of that extra weight. But uh, ultimately, all right, we'll have to wait and see how this technology evolves. But I mean, the future is fantastic for the auto industry. And uh, I think one gentleman, Nitin Gatkari, is making it even more rosy by setting up so many highways and roads. Uh, because I think in India, we don't have a driving culture going from one city to another city, as is there in Europe, in, in uh, China, and in America, because you never had good roads. But now I think with better highways, easier connectivity, that will give a big incentive for car ownership as well. I mean, imagine you could take a car and drive from here to New Delhi. It's never been done in this country before. But with the new highways coming up, it could be a day's trip. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, great times for uh, passenger vehicle manufacturers yes. and i think uh, i think investors should look at it very very closely uh, these are exciting times but what i think that uh, from an investor's perspective the within the auto industry 
the best place to be in is the passenger vehicle, not the two-wheelers, not the tractors, not so much the commercial vehicles. And two-wheelers, I think they're reaching maturity point. Commercial vehicle and tractors are cyclical in nature. But passenger vehicle sales are secular in nature. So that is where I think investors should focus on. You have three or four companies, but you have a whole host of auto ancillary companies as well. And thanks to indigenization program, most of India's auto industry, auto ancillary industry, is strongly focusing on exports as well. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we dig into some of that and uh, we'll go company by company and give investors a perspective on where they should be putting their money. Okay, let's talk about the leader in the Indian automobile segment, particularly for passenger vehicles, uh, Marty Suzuki. I think it's one of your favorite stocks of all time. Absolutely. And I've been tracking this company right from IPO days. And I would say that Maruti Suzuki is India's shining example of foreign direct investment working for the country as well as the investor. Uh, and when Sanjay Gandhi gave the opportunity to Suzuki Motors to partner his fledging company Maruti, I think Suzuki Motors took it with both hands and full credit to them for pouring their soul into the com company and bringing the best state-of-art products. Usually what happens is that a foreign company comes to India, they put their second hand, uh, the, the not-so-great products, but Suzuki Motors went ahead and developed products specifically for the Indian market, and it has paid rich, very rich dividends for them. And Suzuki was the number four player in Japan. And when they came to India, uh, you know, the Indian subsidy now is the largest uh, in the Suzuki Motors ecosystem and has created fantastic value for Suzuki Motors shareholders, for Maruti shareholders like us, for the country at large, and for the entire auto ecosystem because they brought a lot of auto entries also into India. I think every Indian's first car is almost inevitably some sort of a Maruti. Absolutely. I think, at least from my generation onwards, my dad, I think, first car was a Fiat, but my generation onwards, the first car has been a Maruti. And uh, everybody has fond memories of the Maruti 800 and the uh, other various models. And now I think the companies really got products across all segments. And all those products are market leaders within those segments. And they're continuously bringing new technology, new design, new products, new variants into the country. And that's really driving growth for Maruti Suzuki. Yeah, I think uh, one, one number that I saw uh, is that only 3% of all Indian consumers actually own a passenger vehicle. And given that Maruti is the entry-level passenger vehicle for most Indians, uh, is, it, is it fair to expect that their sales will continue to grow at the rate at which it's been growing, as you can see, uh, as more and more Indians you know, hit the income threshold and are able to afford passenger vehicles? Yes, I think so. And with a f on near 50% or thereabout market share, right now I think it gets at 42% or so, keeps going up by 3-4 percentage points. Uh, obviously, I think as the industry grows, it is going to be the market leader which will, uh, first of all, drive the growth, as well as capture a larger pie of the uh, rising sales or the incremental sales which take place over there. And Maruti uh, has lagged in a couple of segments like SUVs, you know, was driven by Mahindra and Mahindra and some other new generation auto companies that came to India. But it has quickly learned from its mistakes and it has launched appropriate products then which have become extremely popular and market leader like the Grand Vitara is there or some of the other SUVs 
they become market leaders because although they were late, but the product is of such a nature that has been really appreciated by the consumer. So it's been a, a shining example of how auto company has created wealth. And not only that, I think there are certain nuances of Maruti which people do not know. One is the fact that it's a, it follows a very asset-like business model. <laughs> I think there's no debt on that box as well. Of course, that goes without saying. Uh, but uh, two or three interesting aspects about them is that Suzuki Motors then, uh, once the capacity utilization was reaching peak level for Maruti, then Suzuki Motors came into India and set up a new plant in Gujarat. And that Gujarat plant has got an exclusive sales arrangement with Maruti only. So Maruti was saved the cost of set, capital cost of setting up a new plant. And it's a very transparent pricing agreement between Suzuki Motors and Maruti Suzuki uh, about how they, they'll produce and the Maruti Suzuki will sell those uh, those new models. And that's a new state of what plant generated a lot of employment within Gujarat as well and created more than adequate capacity for Maruti to grow. That's nuance number one. The second thing what very few people know is that Maruti has used its cash flow to buy huge parcels of land around major cities, around major consuming centers. And they are providing this land to the dealers on a kind of a agreement or a rental basis so that those dealers can set up large uh, workshops, they can set up large uh, you know, showrooms over there for pushing sales. And really when you ask a Maruti consumer, one of the biggest advantages of Maruti is its network. <laughs> availability of spare parts, availability of service uh, centers, and availability of dealers who they can walk into and try out their products. Yeah. So uh, the strategy has been phenomenal and hats off to Maruti that from last 40 years, they have maintained a near 50% market share. It was much, much higher, still at 50% despite 20 plus auto companies in India to have maintained such a huge market share. Yeah, yeah. I guess two two points, I guess, just to know from what you said. The first is that um, in spite of the fact that Marty hasn't seemingly made any significant EV investments, this partnership with Suzuki and by extension with Toyota, um, it would seemingly insinuate them from uh, the technological disruption caused by EVs. Because if, if they're able to purchase cars at transparent transfer prices from their parent entity, uh, even if it's for gasoline cars, presumably that arrangement would carry over to EVs or hydrogen cars or whatever it might be. Is that a fair expectation or is the lack of investment in EVs a risk for them? You answer one question for me, Varun. Who is leading the EV revolution in the world? Is Japan really a key player as far as EV is concerned? I don't think so. Exactly. Then how is Toyota and Suzuki going to be a key player when it comes to EVs within India? I think they, don't you think they are maybe a few years behind? Yeah, I think, I think Japanese manufacturers are betting heavily on hydrogen. Now, maybe they know something that nobody else knows. And if yeah, they, they could put a the hat, you never know, right? But uh, if EVs are a feature, then I think that's a major risk factor then for Maruti. That's, you got it right. I think it's one thing which I don't like about Maruti is the fact that they do not have an EV strategy. They have said that they will unveil that EV strategy. But when you compare it with M&M and Tara Motors, I think certainly they are lagging. But I think that you need to uh, keep one aspect in mind that the EV revolution for passenger vehicles in India 
is going to be much later than what we have seen in China, Europe and US. So we are, I think, many years behind adopting passenger vehicles in the EV space. So the first EVs will come into two-wheelers rather than the passenger vehicles in India because we don't even have a robust EV ecosystem to charge the battery. I'm going to disagree with you on that. Uh, only because if you look at the West as a model of transition from gasoline cars to EVs, then yes, that makes sense. But if you look at China, which is the real global leader in EVs, they didn't, they didn't have this transition from gasoline to EV. Their homegrown EV companies, which is BYD and you know the others, I guess supported by CATL, um, for a lot of Chinese consumers, their first car was an EV. And if you look at government schemes like FAME and the kind of licensing and GST benefits being given to EVs, I think there is a fair expectation that a lot of the incremental consumers might find that their first car itself is an EV. I'm all with you. I think if that happens, then I would like to stand corrected that if India's EV industry uh, becomes as robust as what we have seen in China, then I think that's great news for Indian consumer as well as the Indian economy. And the Indian environment. I mean, Absolutely. We will slip in Mumbai. We're breathing the air. It would be lovely if it was a little bit cleaner. Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, as I said, the biggest factor in Maruti is the fact that they do not have a proper EV strategy. Maybe they're unveiled future in future. But uh, having said that, I think uh, they have worked very hard on new models. And uh, the kind of slate which is there, uh, I think is very impressive. And uh, also one more important aspect is that gradually Maruti is becoming the uh, export hub for Suzuki as well. I think they are focusing a lot on exports to other developing nations. And I was in Israel recently and I saw a lot of uh, Maruti, a lot of Suzuki cars over there. I don't know whether they were imported from India or not, but they're making India as the manufacturing hub for exports as well. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic for the Indian economy and job creation. But, uh, I mean, I know they don't have an EV strategy, but as you can see, their historical performance from a sales and revenue perspective, as well as from a margin perspective, um, and as we've mentioned, uh, a market share perspective has been very strong. That's so um, you can look at the figures, I think. But yeah, they're, yeah, they're fantastic over the last uh, 15, 20 years. What they've done, even recent performance, has been exceptionally good. So I think it's it's great times for uh, Maruti shareholders. And although it's not a recommendation, I think uh, it's certainly a stock to watch. All right. Well, I think that ends our segment on Maruti. Uh, hopefully, our investors keep watching this stock. Okay. So I guess it's time to talk about my favorite automobile company of the moment, Mahindra and Mahindra. Uh, for a disclaimer, it's driven exclusively by the Thar, a car that I quite uh, I quite like. Uh, but it's uh, it's a rising star in the Indian automobile industry. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, and it's another fanning example of a homegrown auto company, and the number of evolutions that it has gone to to reach at this particular level, where it's a fabulous uh, global auto company with in-house capability for design, manufacturing, uh, sales, across the board, I think, uh, uh, hats off to them. They've been around for 77 years. How many companies can boast of being around for that long? So when, when were they founded out? I mean, 77 years is a long, long time. What are their origins? What's their origin story, I guess? It's a pre-partition company founded by two Mahendra brothers and one Mr. Muhammad. So M&M stands for Woods. Earlier stood for Mahindra and Mohammed. 
But then Mr. Mohammad migrated to Pakistan, and then we have M and M, which is Mahendra and Mahendra. Two brothers set up Mahendra and Mahendra, and uh, the key uh, milestone for them was when they started assembling jeeps in India. And the jeep for us was one of the most popular cars. I think the army used it. A lot of the uh, government uh, also agencies used the jeep, and that's when the journey for Mahendra and Mahendra began. When they started manufacturing jeeps, it was under license from an uh, American company. Uh, later owned by Chrysler, and thereafter, I think they felt that uh, they should start developing their own brands and their own products. And I think the initial uh, brands are not that well received. The quality was not up to expectations. It was a, a kind of a product which uh, had a lot of issues in terms of uh, a smooth uh, functioning. But I would say M and M is one company which has invested very heavily in R and D. And they have done. They have grown the product quality, the product design, uh, the kind of uh, systems which are there by leaps and bounds over the last uh, 15, 20 years or so. And all of that credit goes to Anand Mandra, who has been instrumental in making Mandra and Mandra what we call Atma Nirbhar when it comes to their entire automobile uh, business. Yeah, I think they're very well positioned for the future as well. Uh, because I think Mahindra, Mahindra at least, or Mahindra Racing is one of the founding members of Formula E and uh, has, I think, at least once been the runner-up in the Formula E championship. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, they're absolutely on top of this EV curve. And uh, I mean, I'll say it again. Uh, their recent car launches, the Thar in particular, that I quite love, is uh, really shows that investment in quality. But uh, really interesting, another interesting point to note about, you know, how their, their investments in EV are paying off. They have their, their proprietary EV platform called the Iglo, um, on which they're planning on launching a number, of, uh, a number of EVs for the domestic market. But they've also signed agreements with Volkswagen um, to share this EV platform. So there's at least some hope that it will become an export powerhouse as well because of the, because of the quantity of their EV platform. So, you know, Mahindra and Mahindra, when it came to EVs, they were ahead of the time. Uh, they bought into Reva, which was India's first electric vehicle company, way back in 2010. Oh, wow. So, it was Anand Mahindra's vision almost uh, 12 years ago that EV is going to be the way forward uh, for Mahindra and Mahindra, for the auto industry. And they've been investing as much as possible into EV technologies, EV products. Which is why now I think that they are very solidly positioned. In my assessment, they'll be one of the key players when we have more and more passenger vehicle uh, EVs coming into play over here. And I think they've got the formula right when it comes to design, when it comes to experience. I think that's something which they've learned over the last four or five years. Uh, they have a golden touch when it comes to launching new products. As of now, I would say that they have a long waiting list for most of their uh, new models. So that's something which uh, we have to certainly give credit to the current management. A very well-managed company. And uh, recently, uh, the new CEO has taken over the company and their focus is more on getting higher return on capital employed. Mm -hmm. See, typically, the Mandarin Mandra had too much of too many uh, new plants. They had done overseas acquisitions as well. And generally, not enough attention was paid to return on capital. And that was one of the reasons why the company traded at a low price to earning multiple as well. Yeah. So that's changed. Yeah. yeah. And I think as you can see, um, the, the improvement in ROC or return on capital employed 
I'm sure that's reflected in the price performance of Mahindra. Absolutely. I think the stock price has done really well, as you can see, over the last uh, three, four years or so. And uh, that's to do with the focus on ROC, focus on new models, capturing the imagination of their consumers. And that's played out very well for M&M. But there's another division in of M&M, the tractor division, which I think also we should highlight over here because the tractor division is the world's largest uh, you know, tra tractor manufacturer in, in the world. And they've made life easy for so many farmers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say that they have been an unsung hero when it came to the green revolution in the country by providing low-cost, good-quality tractors to the Indian farmer. And that forever has changed uh, the uh, kind of income levels as well as uh, the experience of the farmers. And where tractors in rural areas are not only used for agriculture but for transportation as well. Mm -hmm. And making a tractor in India is not as easy as it is perceived to be because uh, a tractor is used for many functions and not just plowing the fields. Yeah, and you also need a high level of reliability, I'd imagine, in India with tractors because the ability to access after-sales service uh, in comparison to, I guess, you know, the US or Europe would be much, much lower. Exactly. So hats off, I guess, uh, really outstanding performance. I think, as you can see, even the recent, recent results have been outstanding. Um, truly a homegrown homegrown giant absolutely and i think that uh, you know uh, they seem to be a bit ahead of the curve uh, in terms of uh, what is happening in the auto industry especially on the ev side and uh, also the fact that uh, the tractor business although cyclical is one of the best uh, businesses in terms of uh, return ratios in terms of uh, sales in terms of product quality after sales service network is really fantastic i think they've gone very deep into the rural areas and you know what we spoke about in the earlier podcast about monsoon and its effect i think if you want to buy one company which has got a lot of rural revenues coming through it is mines and mines because of its tractor uh, uv business as well as i think a lot of its passenger vehicles and suvs also go into rural areas all right well um that's definitely a stock to watch for the future maybe uh maybe anand Mahindra's vision will play out in the you know, a couple of years from now, we'll be hailing him as the next Elon Musk or India's Tesla. Absolutely. Look forward to it. So let's discuss uh, the third big stock on the agenda for today, a bellwether of the Indian automobile industry, Tata Motors. Um, really mixed bag of results recently and disappointing performance over the last few years. Any thoughts? Well, first of all, a confession. I've been in the market uh, for many decades. And Tata Motors was listed even before perhaps I was born. But I have never really invested in Tata Motors. And the reason for that is that it's one company which has had very high degree of volatility in their earnings. So in the early part, they were purely a commercial vehicle manufacturing company and that had its own cyclicality because of which margins were always going up and down and sales also was quite erratic. And then uh, somewhere around uh, the 2000, the 2004, 1998 actually first in the entire 2000s uh, they decided to venture into car production a uh, passenger vehicle manufacturing purely on account of the passion of its uh, promoter other uh, director chairman Ratan Tata who was very passionate about getting Tata Motors into high class um, passenger vehicle segment and they launched the Indica which was I would say a decent success 
but had many uh, issues in terms of product quality. I believe we owned an Indica at some point as well, and, and it was a really disappointing ownership experience because we didn't really enjoy that car at all, did we? No, really, and from the day we bought it, it had niggling problems which they really couldn't solve, and it was to make a lot of noise because of the diesel engine per se. Uh, so Tata Motors have been struggling to find the right product for a passenger vehicle, which they could, you know, kind of uh, make it a success. The Nano also came with a lot of fanfare, but that did not really succeed because clearly that aspiration aspect was where it uh, was a liability because when you bought a Nano, you didn't really buy a car. It was a compromise. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really didn't take off, which was quite surprising. And it's actually a case study uh, as far as uh, marketing uh, and consumer and I believe, are concerned. Uh, I believe at the point when the Nano was launched, there were several problems with reliability. And I think there was a spate of news stories where the car was uh, catching fire a lot. And I think uh, that, that really hurt its brand image a lot and maybe contributed to poor sales. That's right. And generally, I think when it comes to quality, uh, I think Tata Motors, until now, has been lagging. But last three, four years, they have made great progress in terms of uh, product quality, in terms of uh, design, in terms of experience. And I think they have come on the scene now as far as passenger vehicles are concerned. They have certainly grown their market share last two, three years or so. And they are ahead of the curve when it comes to electric vehicles. All the EVs which they have launched, Nexon, yeah. and on the other platform. I think, I think the, the, the perspective growth that Tata can, uh, then, then, that Tata can experience from electric vehicles um, could be quite transformational. But before we you know, go, go to its future, future potential, um, I'd love to discuss sort of the JLR acquisition because it's one of those things that seems to have brought uh, a lot of debt on Tata Motors' books. And perhaps it's paid off as well because I think for uh, several years after it was acquired, it did very well. So first a story, actually a rumor, that Ratan Tata was very fond of the uh, Jaguar car. In fact, some say he actually owned a Jaguar as well. And when Ford Motors put up Jaguar Land Rover for sale in 2008, uh, the Tatas bid quite aggressively and uh, they thought they had got a prized asset. Uh, maybe they overpaid, that's what analysts say at that point of time. Because uh, Jaguar Land Rover was really suffering uh, at that point of time in terms of financial, in terms of capacity utilization. But they had two, three fabulous products. And in hindsight, I think it was a very good acquisition. Uh, they have more than recovered the investment which they have made. It's grown in terms of contribution, volume, value. And the products have been absolute global hits. The, the Land Rover, the Discovery, the Jaguar XJ, XF and the XE models have all done really well. They expanded into China as well. And uh, I think that uh, although they may have overpaid at that point of time, it does appear to be a very strategic and sensible decision. Their thought process was that they could bring the Jaguar technology into the passenger vehicle manufacturing and production in India. I would say that that's been a mixed success. It's not really worked out for them. But right now, I think there's a great deal of synergy on the any side between JLR and Tata Motors e-vehicle platform. But having said that, Jaguar Land Rover is one company which has again had a high degree of volatility in their earnings because there are just far too many moving parts. They supply to three, four continents. Some key markets are there, Europe, UK, US and China, which do not all uh, you know, perform in unison. So that creates an issue. In terms of uh, even accounting policies, in terms of provisioning, for be it for uh, uh, you know, the uh, forex uh, exposure which they have, 
or the uh, employee cost that keeps on fluctuating. So when you, in fact, I have jokingly said that when you buy Tata Motors, then that's the only stock you are tracking because there are so many variables involved over here. So from that point of view also, I have generally avoided buying Tata Motors stock per se. But uh, the company has taken uh, a lot of uh, changes and strides in their progress in the last two, three years. So maybe, you know, who knows from now I may look at it in different light. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But one thing that that, uh, that really strikes is that JLR is such a huge component of Tata Motors. And uh, a lot of their sales are derived from the US, Europe and China. And with interest rates rising, with a slowdown in growth, uh, I think Tata Motors' exposure to the global economy is, over the next few years, seems to me like a negative. Because if, if it was global sales that was driving their, their growth and their volumes, I would not expect that to, to be positive over the next few years, given the global macroeconomic situation. So maybe something to, to be really concerned about with Tata Motors. Yes, you made a very interesting point, Varu. Because when we are looking at buying stocks in the auto industry, we want to play the Indian auto industry. We want a exposure to that vibrant, reasonably high growth segment within the economy. But when it comes to Tata Motors, what you're getting into is you're getting into a global play. So you could easily have bought Volkswagen or Mercedes or any of the global auto companies. And, uh, you know, although we cannot buy as Indians, but the growth prospects of GLR are linked to the global economy and global auto industry. And that's not an investment theme I want to play. Mm-hmm. I want to play the Indian auto industry. And that is something which Tata Motors doesn't really offer. Of course, they have a commercial vehicle division, but that's for another, uh, for another day. But on the whole, I think uh, volatility in earnings, the fact that its contribution from the India business is limited and restricted, as well as the fact that there's a high degree of volatility in their earnings doesn't make Tata Motors a very attractive investment bet. Well, perhaps, perhaps just to play the contrarian, um, maybe in the near future, Tata Motors' India contribution could could improve substantially because uh, I believe they have, a, they have a leading position in the EV segment and they're the largest EV manufacturer and they have the highest number of EV sales in India. And I think a lot of that is because of the overall Tata ecosystem. A um, couple of really interesting synergies there. Charging networks and fast charging networks are one of the key uh, key drivers of EV sales growth. And the fact that Tata Power is also within the Tata portfolio uh, of companies um, will certainly help setting up those EV charging stations. Tata AutoCAD, I believe, is, uh, is another subsidiary of the Tata Group that manufactures batteries. And they have a partnership with China's third largest battery manufacturer which is a leader in the lithium-ion phosphate battery chemistry, which is uh, perhaps better suited to India. So perhaps in the near term, you know, uh, given their improvement in car quality, uh, they might become a leader in the EV space in India because of the unique advantages that they have being part of the Tata ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. I think they are certainly a step ahead of the competition. And the entire consumer focus is on EVs. There are long waiting lists for all the, the EV, car, EV products of Tata Motors. So maybe that will work out for them. But still, I think for many, many years, Jaguar Land Rover will become, will be the key uh, performing division uh, for Tata Motors. And that's something, something which one needs to keep uh, track of. But I mean, one most positive thing about Tata Motors is its subsidiary company, Tata Technologies. 
and that's coming out of an IPO and that's one IPO which I'm keenly looking forward to and I hope I think I will apply certainly because uh, in the, if you look at the software industry, uh, the, the brightest spot is the software companies which are giving products and services to the auto industry, especially the EV, uh, shared mobility. And that's where Tata Technologies is focused. And given the kind of returns that other such companies in the listed space like Tata Alexi and K KPIT have given, I think we have very high expectations from Tata Technologies as well. And they are trying to monetize that particular asset and which is very positive because it will go a long way in reducing their debt. Yeah. Management has targeted zero debt by FY25. Let's see how that plays out. Yeah, and I think as you can see, um, their overall debt levels have been quite high for a very long time on account of uh, particularly the JLR acquisition. Hopefully a successful Tata Technologies IPO gives Tata Motors uh, a new boost and improves their financial performance. Absolutely. So, but as I said, I think, you know, essentially, um, you have a choice and you, in the market, I would prefer a homegrown uh, domestic focused auto company or even an auto ancillary over Tata Motors. But there are many market investors in Tata Motors and there's one very unique factor about Tata Motors is that it always disappoints the optimist and the pessimist because uh, it comes up with a quarterly number which is a disaster and there are so many negatives in it and people threw in the towel and then the next quarter will be just phenomenal and eye-popping when it comes to global sales and the profits and the margins and uh, you know even those who have perhaps uh, thrown in the towel they need to they sit up and look at the numbers so that's the thing about Tata Motors that it does pull a rabbit out of the bag from time to time and hopefully I think uh, if they're able to manage uh, you know secular growth and earnings then investors will certainly get interested in it. Tata's have been known to create a great deal of value in their companies. Uh, Tata Motors has been a bit of a laggard over the past several decades or so. Hopefully it will make a uh, catch up. And one last thing is that Tata Motors has always got the highest attention and focus of the chairman of the Tata group. So earlier it was written Tata and now even under uh, Chandra, uh, it has got a very high focus on the top Tata management mm -hmm. team. So maybe that will uh, certainly work out for Tata Motors shareholders at some point of time. You never know. Tata Motors is definitely another one of our stocks to watch. Absolutely. And uh, I think we'll enjoy watching how it plays out. Fantastic. So I think it's been a really interesting conversation with you today, Dad, about uh, the Indian automobile space and particularly passenger vehicles and um, you know how investors can make the right decisions in this space. Um, and thank you so much for coming here and sharing your thoughts and wisdom and insight uh, and I'm sure that investors have something really important to take away from this discussion. Yeah, I think it was a uh, great pleasure for me as well and I was going down memory lane because I've been investing in these auto companies ever since I entered the market and uh, they have been a great amount of wealth creators for us as well as a lot of investors and as I said I think uh, a very uh, informative uh, session which we had today I hope you have enjoyed it. Yeah and you know even more important than our viewers enjoying this, uh, I really, really hope that Anand Mahindra sees this podcast and sends me a thar because that's that's the car I want to own. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. And um, yeah. Yeah. Lady.